You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 527 for June 24th, 2020. On today's show, clarinetist Ben Goldberg. This is the final show of season 12 of the Jazz Session. So in order to get lots of great content all throughout the summer, in other words, July and August, you need to become a member. You can do that today at thejazzsession.com slash join. Membership will get you a weekly episode, which I'm calling Track of the Week, in which I talk about a tune I like and probably invite other people to do the same. Also, I'm intending, if all goes well, to do a few episodes about the intersection of improvised music and The Grateful Dead uh, as well during the summer. So if you want access to all of that stuff, become a member today for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Ben Goldberg's latest project is a daily composition project called Plague Diary. Ben Goldberg, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. It is my pleasure to have you. As I was mentioning to you off the air, uh, I really enjoy your music. I've listened to it for a long time. And somehow, despite this show having been on for 13 years, this is your first time on. So, uh, you know, apologies for the uh, gross oversight on my part, which we are now fixing. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you. The thing that sparked this conversation was a new solo project um, kind of born of the pandemic called Plague Diary, in which you're doing a daily recording. And, and I hoped maybe you could just start us off by telling us a little bit about how that's working and how the idea came to you. Definitely. Well, when the pandemic hit and we were uh, told to quarantine, um, it was quite a shock like like a lot of other musicians, I mean, I kind of immediately, within a space of about a few days, I lost all my work. Everything got canceled, concerts, festivals, tours. I was left with a feeling of like, what am I going to do? What What can I do? I guess I figured like, well, one thing I can do is find some way to try to keep the music alive and actually to kind of, I felt, I kind of had a feeling that that the situation presented a kind of a test of my belief that music is important, that music, that we need music, that music is a positive force in the world. And 
I kind of felt like, well, okay, all the external uh, validation for that belief has now been taken away. There's no more concerts. There's no gatherings. There's no rehearsing. There's no more gigs for the moment. But I, I had a feeling that the situation presented a kind of test, like almost like, okay, put your money where your mouth is. If music really is important and if it's a thing that keeps me going and if it's a thing that's important for all of us, then now's the time to to kind of redouble my efforts to devote myself to music. So the the one thing that I felt like I still had was the ability to record at home. I felt like, okay, I'll just make a new song every day. It'll be my way of trying to keep myself together, and hopefully I'll be creating something that could be useful to others. So I started this project pretty soon after the quarantine hit, and it's called Plague Diary, and I just I created a Bandcamp album, and I'm just uploading a, one song every day. The music is available on Bandcamp for free. I, f- I felt like that was important. We're closing in on, at this point, when, as we talk, we're, I'm closing in on the uh, pretty close to 60 songs now on Plague Diary. <laughs> of a test is interesting to me. I've seen a lot of talk um, on social media and even among my friends about the idea of productivity during this time when so much of what we might normally be doing has stopped. And there's, there's kind of a push for and a push against this idea of productivity. Um, the, the push for being, you know, let's use this time that we have, you know, that's some of us have like almost a monastic level of alone time. Let's use it for betterment. And then I've seen people on the other end say, sure, if you want to, but let's not get caught up in the idea that that's what has to happen, that really your only mission right now is to make it to the other side of whatever this is. And that there's no there's no external force pressing in on you to have to produce things during this time. And it sounds like you're kind of on the former end of that spectrum, like feeling a real need to keep creating during this time. And I'm just curious about what what you feel might be driving that. A few things occurred to me. One is the feeling that, okay, so we're living in more or less unprecedented conditions. I don't think any of us have ever experienced anything quite like this, whether the entire world has before or not, I'm not sure. But one thing that I feel is like, this is an important time to create art, precisely because we really don't know what's happening. We're not really sure what's going on. 
We don't know how long this is going to last. All of our social relations have been disrupted and 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 changed. We're living in a pressure cooker, and it's it's a it's the kind of moment that's very intense, and we don't have a perspective on it. So I feel like this is an important time to to make art because art contains what we know, and it's going to be important later on to to have the art that was created at this time in order to help us understand what it what it is that we're going through right now once we are able to have some kind of perspective so that i think that's part of it and i feel like i always used to kind of wonder like why was there such a, an amazing creative scene for example in poland during the iron curtain days when the society was being suppressed and art in particular was being suppressed and people were trying, attempting to control it. And I used to wonder, like, how can they do that? But I kind of had a feeling that they were doing it because they needed to. Something's pushing on you. You have to push back. Humanity has to push back. And and I feel like in some ways we're in an analogous situation right now because of the uncertainty and the pressure and, and, the, and the anxiety. I just try to put everything I know into every song that I make. And I just feel like... I mean, plus I'm on a relentless schedule, so I don't really have time to go back and listen to anything that I've done previously because every day I'm faced with the task of finding something new and and getting it recorded and trying to make it sound like something that I'd want to listen to. In a sense, I've kind of imposed some conditions on myself that require me to rely on the unconscious to create the work because there's there's no time. There's no time to contemplate or reflect. There's just time to do it. On your website, there's a, a beautiful set of lines uh, from Alan Grossman, who figured into the Orphic Machine Project, that says, We awaken in the poem. How did we come there? Indeed, we came there because the straight way was lost. And that seems almost eerily appropriate to what you were just saying, this this idea that we are, in some cases, trying to get back into this this river of art and creation because it's almost the only thing we can have any control over in this moment. That's a beautiful line. That's a really beautiful line. I've been thinking a lot about Alan Grossman these days and the, his, his way of, of transmitting not his knowledge and, and wisdom to another generation. I mean, this is the type of moment where it actually would be reasonable to say things to say something like, "Well, we don't we, we don't need art now. We need something else. You know, we got to save ourselves. Art can wait, or something like that." But, but I think also, it, also if you look around right now, especially in the United States, 
there is a real question about what what is it that we need. It's hard to rely on the uh, political leadership right now. Politics doesn't seem to be solving the problem. Economics is not solving the problem. I'm not saying art is going to find a cure for the virus, but but I feel like it's super important right now to to devote ourselves to maintaining and strengthening the kind of deep knowledge that art uh, allows us to access and to transmit. It feels like another form of mutual aid to me that, you know, in the same way I live in Tucson and um, given the, you know, (laughs) essential uselessness of the government in Arizona, which is, you know, just reopening full steam ahead at this moment. um, The, people have decided instead that they will do for themselves. And so, you know, Food Not Bombs and the People's Defense Initiative and other groups in the city where I live are uh, coming up with ways to provide food for the people who need it and, um, Mm. you know, just provide services and, um, you know, counseling services and other kinds of outreach for folks who are being failed by the system. And I don't think mutual aid has to stop at the practical um, yeah. I think it can extend to this idea of, you know, we provide we provide the things that make us human for each other. And art feels very much yes. like a part of that to me. Yes, absolutely. I agree completely. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really nice to hear. The Jazz Session is the first and oldest jazz interview podcast. It's been going for 13 years, more than 500 episodes. And this is the final episode of this season, season 12. Season 13 begins on the first Wednesday of September. And in the time between now and then, if you would like cool weekly content, the only way to get it is to become a member. You can do that for five or 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Now, of course, becoming a member is about more than just getting stuff. It's also about you deciding that this thing that I'm doing means enough to you that you're willing to support it. So please do that today at thejazzsession.com slash join. Now back to the episode. I wanted to step away from uh, the Plague Diary for a minute and talk about mm-hmm. the clarinet. Um, so okay, I yeah. I started as a, a clarinet player before switching to soprano saxophone and um, almost involuntarily, although I loved it and stayed with it. But when I left the clarinet, I kind of felt like I had, even though the soprano saxophone is not a super common instrument um the saxophone is is particularly in improvised music and when i left the clarinet i i did feel somewhat like i had left a cooler more secret society and um whenever i listen to you and you know the kind of the few other clarinet players whose work i even hear i mean i think a lot of it probably escapes my attention just you know through my own shortcomings but when i when i listen to clarinet players i do feel like you're accessing a part of both the history of this music and the current times of this music that I'm almost like not privy to. 
and I don't want to, I'm not saying you're like in some forming some clarinet priesthood that none of us have access to, but I just feel like it's, 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 own thing in a way that not too many other instruments have their own thing which i think makes it kind mm. of mysterious and exciting to me and you feel free to push back on any of that and say that it's all ridiculous but that's the impression that i get of the instrument that you play and i'm just curious if any of that resonates with you at all or if or if not that's perfectly oh fine. yeah oh yeah well one thing about the clarinet is it's much smarter than the human brain i mean it's <laughs> the, clar- the clarinet is a machine that has completely outwitted the human brain's ability to figure things out and so like it's it there's there's always it, it, it what that means is that there's there's always the doorway to mystery when you're playing the clarinet because you can't master it it's too tricky and it speaks in its own voice and even when you in, intend to do something on the clarinet, something else is always going to be hovering around, around the edges. And the clarinet in some ways is telling you what to do. So it's a beautiful struggle. You know, it's, it's a beautiful struggle. And I've been engaged in that struggle for more than 50 years. And I do not feel like I know how to play the clarinet. There's always a new, there's always a, a new uh, level of of um, mystery or or confusion or desperation involved in playing the clarinet. I know in in so, my own yeah. case when I was starting to listen to soprano saxophone players trying to to get some kind of grounding in that music, uh-huh. um, the first. Well, probably really the first person I heard was Chris Vidala, who played with Chuck Bangioni because I grew up in Rochester, New York in the 80s. And so that's All right. yeah. <laughs> that's who was around. Um, and then the second was John Coltrane. But I didn't feel like I really got a grasp of what the instrument could do until I heard the third person who I heard because somebody handed me, I think, a dubbed cassette of a Steve Lacey record. And uh-huh. yeah. then I thought, oh, my Lord, there's so much more to this instrument and its potential. And I know that Steve Lacey was instrumental in your own growth as a musician, and I hoped maybe you could say a few words about him and why that was. Oh, yeah, totally. I I agree with you completely. When you hear Steve Lacey, well, when you hear Steve Lacey play the soprano saxophone, you hear something true about the voice of that instrument. You also hear one of the most beautiful sounds that's ever been created, really, if you think about it, and one of the most mysterious sounds you just can't get to the bottom of that. Yeah, Steve Lacey was, I would say he was my hero when I was younger. When I first heard Steve Lacey, I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I couldn't get over it. You know, it was one of those experiences where you just need to hear more of that sound all the time. When I was in Europe, I used to kind of follow him around as much as I could, and I would always ask him for a lesson. Eventually, he, he uh, agreed to give me a lesson one afternoon and and that it was just one lesson, and honestly, it changed my whole life. He gave me kind of like practical exercises to work on that I spent the next, at least the next 10 years working on, but really stuff that I've never really left behind that I still work on. And then, and of course, that stuff developed in my own practice into other types of things, but that was really the seed. That was really the event that changed everything for me. 
I was just thinking the other day that one thing that Steve Lacey gave me in conversations and in particular at that lesson was a model of thinking about and approaching, maybe you could call it the unknown or the mysterious world, from the most practical standpoint that you can find. And that really stuck with me. That, re that really hit me. I didn't know what it was at the time. I didn't know what it was, but he was talking about the deepest questions of art and life, but talking about it like as if he's a plumber fixing the sink. Like, yeah, well, you just have to do this. You know, you can work on this if you want. And that really stuck with me. And I've carried that with me in my own learning and like as I've experimented, like how I can try to become a better musician. And also I've done my best to apply that in my teaching when I work with students to help people, try to help people find practical ways of dealing with the biggest issues in life. I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds almost like, I don't know, a paraphrase of Buddhist philosophy or something about, you know, kind of being in the present moment, dealing with what is, you know, as a way to a greater understanding of everything else that is. Um, I, but I could be misunderstanding. Is Does that ring true at all? Or could you maybe say a little more about that idea of the practical and the mysterious? Yeah, I think to me, it seems like you can't just talk about the big mysteries. There's no language for that. There's no way to talk about that. All you can really talk about is the problem at hand. So that's what we've got. What we've got is the need to solve practical problems. So and in terms of like learning in music, especially for me, when I was young at that age, I didn't know what was going on. And I, and I had no idea how to try to find something to grab onto. I knew that I, I knew I was crazy about, let's say, Steve Lacey's music. And honestly, I kind of wished I could play like him. But one thing that Steve Lacey told me at that lesson was he said, you're drawn to something. You think that's the end of the story. You think that's what you need to have or what you need to learn. And as you get closer to it, as you work hard and get closer to it, it parts like a curtain. And you see that there was actually something behind it that was shining through. Of course, you thought that it was the thing itself, the thing that you had originally identified as the object of, of uh, wisdom or attainment or something like that. But when you do the work and you get closer to it, it becomes translucent and you see that there was it was actually a screen through which a brighter light was shining. And I thought and when I think about that now that he told me that at the lesson, I mean I was a Steve Lacey worshiper, like I said. I think he kind of saw that that I needed to hear that and that I and also he probably saw that it's not something that I would have understood at the moment, but that it would take thirty years before I would begin to understand what he meant by that. Because he could see that for me, he was that object. He was the thing that I wanted to achieve.
you know, it puts me in mind too of the the Orphic Machine project. Uh, I've already mentioned um, Alan Grossman, and it feels like you, as you're kind of assembling this worldview, um, and we're kind of I think talking about these things in the opposite order of what they happened, but that um, mm-hmm. that Alan was another part of putting together some idea of how to look at the mystery and how to more deeply understand, uh, you know, the, the stream that we're all <laughs> swimming in. Um, and so I hope yeah. that maybe you could say a few words about, about him and about Orphic machine, which I think is, is just a stunning piece of work. And oh, thank um, you. yeah, you're quite welcome. And I would love to just hear some more about it. Well, Alan Grossman was a, a, a poet and, and a scholar um, and uh, he was a professor at Brandeis University when I first went to college. I went to Brandeis University for one year. I didn't know what I was doing and I felt completely lost. But somebody told me, you better take this class from Alan Grossman. And it was called The Representation of Experience. The idea was to read old books like the Bible, Gilgamesh, books like that. He, that was the text that he would use to show us how to find out about the story of the development of human consciousness through these books. So that was basically mind-blowing. And I said he was a professor, he was a poet and a professor and a scholar, but you know what he really was, was a kind of prophet. He was a, a seeker of wisdom and also therefore somebody who devoted himself to being, a, I don't know what the word is exactly, but a bridge. I don't know if bridge is the right word, but putting himself in the in the in the current of wisdom in order to transmit it and this is something that he spoke about a lot he called it the conservation of value over time in other words kind of like what i was saying earlier about putting everything you know into the music and then it carries through into the future and provides material for people to to uh, reflect on or or hopefully learn something from the work that we create today. And th- that was, in a lot of ways, I think that was his main topic. And he conducted classes where, I swear, I'm looking back on it, I swear, I don't think anybody in that class felt like they knew, like, like they understood anything that was going on in the class. <laughs> Really, I don't think anybody understood that at all. And I think he knew that. I think he knew that the words that he spoke in that class left people completely bewildered. And years later, I started reading uh, this amazing book that he wrote. I was so happy to find it because I hadn't realized that he had written a book that contained a lot of these amazing, amazing statements that he made. And the the book is called Summa Lyrica. And it's really the most mind-blowing thing you could ever read. It's a book, it's what he calls a book of speculative poetics, like a book about kind of like the philosophy of poetry. But the book itself is also written, you know, using statements that you can't understand. You can't figure it out. They're completely opaque. And when I got a hold of that book, it was about 20 years ago or so now, I read that book for five years, solid over and over and over because I because I knew something was there. I also felt like I couldn't figure out anything about it. And that kind of eventually for me shined some light on 
the the nature of his teaching back when I was in college because I felt like if, if you want to transmit something that's deeply valuable, like what we might call wisdom or understanding, it has to be done by presenting people with, I'm not sure what the word is, quandaries or or opaque statements that make them want to understand what's going on, but then also require them to do some to do the work to develop understanding because that's the way that the deeper understanding is transmitted. You can't hand it to me, but you can give me something to puzzle over. And if I devote myself to puzzling over it, then eventually I'm going to reach some kind of understanding. I'm not exactly sure if it's what you thought you were teaching me, but it is going to lead to some understanding on my part. So I kind of realized that, and then I got a, a commission from Chamber Music America to write some music based on that book. And and I just thought, what the heck? Just take those sayings themselves. I mean, they've been so important to me, these little tiny sayings, and put them in songs and actually repeat them over and over. Most of the songs on Orphic Machine probably don't have more than a dozen words in them. So the lyrics are made out of statements from this book, Summa Lyrica, by Alan Grossman. And my idea was like that I had benefited from just turning these things over in my mind, contemplating them, coming back to them, thinking about them some more. So I thought like, yeah, make some songs that just allow these statements as lyrics to kind of hang in the air. So so the listener can have an opportunity to also contemplate them and hopefully find something in there. Let's take a moment to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible, starting with the members who support it, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, and Dave Rabel for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll started this season as the voice of the intro. Hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the jazz session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at the jazz session. But remember, I don't go on social media. I just post there. So if you want to get a hold of me, you should do that at jason at thejazzsession.com. Take a second right now to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, which improves my ability to reach new folks. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, poetry, and more, subscribe to my newsletter. I don't know why I couldn't think of that word, which comes out every two weeks. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now, back to the episode. Ben, as we kind of approach the end of this conversation, which is an end I am essentially forcing because if it were up to me, this would be about a 27-hour interview. But Uh um, 
for the for the purposes of this show actually being listenable for the average listener, I'm going to start moving toward yeah. the close. And I want to circle back around to uh, Plague Diary. Well, as we're recording uh-huh. this conversation, it's the third week, I guess, in May. But when people are hearing it, it's the end of June. So it's very hard to know where the Plague Diary or where we as a society will be at that point. But I am curious, as right. as we talk right now... Do you have any idea how you'll know when to stop? Right. That's a that's a really good question. And and you know, one way that we often know when to stop is when we're exhausted. And I reached that point a long time ago. And it's not just the exhaustion of plague diary, but I think it's exhaustion that a lot of us are feeling with trying to deal with the current situation. So that that's not gonna be my way of deciding when to quit because I'm already exhausted and every single day I feel like I can't do it. <laughs> well, well, I have to make a song. I got to find something. And then I have to turn it into a song. And then I have to watch the record levels and then try to do some kind of rudimentary mixing. Like, I just can't. You know, and and literally, I've been working on these songs every single day from like nine in the morning until two or three the next morning uh, without stopping. So wow. it's it's been it's been like an amazing an amazing amount of work. So, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, one, I guess one thing to say is maybe when the quarantine gets lifted, maybe that will be the end of Plague Diary or something. I'm not really sure to tell you the truth. And along those lines, I just want to say that part of, I think part of the unconscious intent on my part was actually that I wanted to put myself in conditions of desperation. I have to create, I have to accomplish the task today. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Because I feel like that's where the deeper stuff lies. That's where the real art is going to come from. Not from doing a great job and polishing up the performance. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I don't have time for that now. And so every day I'm just trying to reach for something. And I feel like for, for my own purposes, that's been one of the, one of the underlying goals. My guest has been Ben Goldberg. Uh, links to all his work will be in the show notes of this episode, and I encourage you to dive deeply into what he's created because everything that I've heard, <laughs> I've really, really enjoyed and has rewarded repeated listening. Uh, ben, at the risk of uh, being a little too mushy here at the end, I will just say that I have done thousands of interviews at this point, and Every once in a while, one of them comes along where I feel like there is literally no better way I could have possibly spent the last little chunk of time than doing what I was doing. And this is definitely one of those. So thank you so much for being so thoughtful and for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, thanks for saying that. That means a lot to me. And and it's been a, a real pleasure talking with you. If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. That's the only way to get the cool members-only content that will be happening during the summer hiatus. Thanks to my guest for the season finale of season 12, Ben Goldberg. New guests will be on the show starting the first week in September. Until then, become a member or, you know, come back in two months, I guess, for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.